Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Kenneth Stanley. Uh, he's a senior researcher at Uber. AI Labs. He had a bunch of other credentials that he'll talk to us about in a second, but I just want to welcome him first. How are you doing, Dr. Stanley? Uh, doing good. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about uh, your background. It sounds like it's pretty extensive, and I don't want to garble it and mess it up. It's better if you... Uh, sure. So um, I was and am currently uh, still a professor at the University of Central Florida in the computer science department, um, working in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And uh, I also, uh, at when I uh, recently, when I was in that position, also started a company uh, with several colleagues, uh, Gary Marcus, Sabine Garmani, and Doug Bemis, called Geometric Intelligence, um, which was a machine learning company. Um, and we were acquired uh, in uh, late uh, 2016 by Uber. Um, and we became, uh, after being acquired, Uber AI Labs. So that led to me also becoming now um, a scientist at Uber AI Labs and one of the founding members um, who's been helping to build out Uber AI Labs. So basically two things at once now. Um, and I'm temporarily at the moment on leave from the university. So what is, uh, let's talk about Uber AI Labs. Why do you think they bought the company and what, where are they taking it? What's the goal now that you're working on? Uh, why did they uh, buy the company? Um, they bought the company because Uber recognized that um, artificial intelligence and machine learning are in, ultimately fundamental to their business. Um, and a lot of the things they do have behind them 
the opportunity, at least, for machine learning to improve operations. Um, everything from uh, getting you your ride as quickly as possible, which involves really complicated kinds of dispatch problems, um, all the way up to uh, things like autonomous control. And um, there is also another interesting reason, which is that you know there's a lot of uh, movement in machine learning right now in industry. Um, there's a lot of big labs being built up by big tech companies, um, which are really leading in the area of machine learning. And Uber recognized that disruption in that particular area in machine learning um, has relevance to their business, um, no matter almost anywhere it comes from and therefore recognized the need to keep up with and anticipate the cutting edge and how it moves forward. So what, uh, I mean, what are some of the projects that you worked on at Uber AI? You know, without, I know you can't give away secrets, but, you know, what kinds of innovations or progress have you guys made and how has it helped? Yeah, sure. So uh, you can see uh, Uber AI Labs um, and some of what it's been doing publicly, incidentally, just uh, if people are curious, like you can go, um, and uh, look up Uber AI Labs on Google, and you'll find a homepage for it. Um, and uh, you can see some of the stuff we've been doing. So, so to some extent, um, our aim is to actually um, engage publicly with the scientific community and, and the general public just to show what we've been doing uh, at a scientific level. And you can see um, some, some of the diversity of areas that we've been working in. So Uber AI Labs as a whole is diverse in its in its interests. So if you know about machine learning or artificial intelligence, you know, would know that there's a lot of different sub areas of artificial intelligence and Uber ILEVs covers a good spectrum of those. So there's not any particular one. Um, we try to uh, cover diversity and uh, that was the philosophy of geometric intelligence as well before we were acquired. Um, and so in particular myself, I've been uh, focused on um, neural networks and evolutionary computation and what's called neuroevolution, which is a combination of the two, um, and that also encompasses uh, deep learning, which is sort of what neural networks have become recently. Um, and so I've been pushing the research in those areas, um, and of course, I, I, as well as others in, in the lab, have been looking at um, problems within Uber as well. So our, our mandate is to, is to both push the cutting edge uh, in science in general, and also obviously um, find connections and help the business. Right. Well, talk to me about the science and what are some of the, the potential benefits that will come from it. You know, for example, what are okay. what's being worked on out there? Sure, sure. Okay. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about the science going on in uh, my lab uh, within Uber or in my group within Uber. Um, and what we've been looking at. Uh, we've been looking in at the field of neuroevolution uh, and neural networks, like I mentioned. And in that sphere, there are a few uh, areas that are interesting. And you know, one in particular is what's called reinforcement learning and how we can learn to uh, autonomously control and make uh, decisions um, that might be uh, useful for um, automated decision making. And so, uh, this field, uh, neuroevolution, if you haven't heard of it, um, I'd encourage you to look it up for those listening um, and, and read about it. It's very interesting because what it's about is using evolutionary algorithms, which means like kind of like a Darwinian process to evolve a neural network, which basically means like a little kind of artificial brain. Now, obviously, for yeah, people out there who understand a little bit about uh, neural networks, they're nothing like uh, biological brains, but they're inspired by uh, some of the ideas in biological brains. So it, informally, if, if you want to kind of get an intuition, there's kind of like evolving brains um, in the field. Um, and then those brains would be able to use to control things and make decisions. 
so within that, um, what we've been looking at um, recently is what does it mean for really big computation uh, to uh, apply it to this kind of idea of neuroevolution. So like in the past, you know, we would be able to evolve uh, small neural networks, relatively small neural networks, which might have, say, a few thousand connections in them. And so connections basically means like synapses, roughly, um, connections between neurons. And just for reference, in your own brain, you have about 100 trillion connections. So we were talking about maybe max wow. a few thousand. So way, way, way simpler in terms of the kinds of things they could do. Um, but recently, because there's so much computation available uh, now compared to, say, the recent past, um, we have got the ability now to evolve millions of connections. So it's a huge change, actually, in the field. Um, neural networks with millions of connections. Um, and, you know, Uber has a lot of compute power, um, as do a lot of these big tech companies. And it gives us the opportunity to kind of like um, step up to this new level and see what can happen at this new level. And that's been one of the exciting things that we've been exploring is sort of when we apply more compute power, can we actually evolve large networks? And the larger field of deep learning has had this realization for a while that you can train really big neural networks now. Um, and neuroevolution as a particular field, which is different from most of deep learning, because most of it is not about evolution, um, has now sort of stepped into this arena where we also know now that you can also evolve very large networks, um, neural networks. And that basically what, tells what us happened that, to, um, yeah. What happened to take us from small to large networks? What was the uh, technological hurdle that was overcome yeah, that allowed you to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's been basically two things that have happened. I mean, one is the shift from processing these kinds of structures on CPUs to GPUs or, or um, graphical processing units um, when it used to be central processing units. Um, and that's been a, an ongoing shift for the last 10 years or more um, where people have more and more realized that the most efficient way to run a very large neural network is through a GPU. Um, and that's because it has certain properties that allow parallelism and parallelism basically means that diff if you think about it in terms of a neural network, like different parts of the same neural network can run at the same time, like which is going to vastly speed up how fast that neural network can be processed. Um, the other big advance that is more relevant to neuroevolution than deep learning is having the ability to have multiple CPUs um, or uh, even multiple GPUs. So basically really large-scale parallelism, which is really good in an evolutionary sense because evolution has population. So in evolution, you might have something like a 1,000 or 10,000 neural networks all at the same time being evaluated. Um, and that's how you get breeding, you know, or how you get generations to move forward is you have to evaluate lots of individuals and then the best ones, who would we call the most fit, would be uh, the ones who would reproduce. And it's sort of like, if, if it's hard to think about, it's really similar just to like breeding animals or something like that. And so of course, if well, we can are evaluate- there any, um, yeah. Are there any emergent properties you notice when a network gets complicated enough or big enough, whatever that means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So things have changed in this, what we, we call it a higher dimensional space, so because like, we think of each connection as a dimension, um, because basically each connection gets a weight and the weights are what determine what the network will do. Um, and so when we jump from, like, say, thousands to millions of dimensions, there are some, some interesting things that change. Um, and uh, one of the things that seems to have changed, um, and this is broadly recognized in deep learning as well, is that uh, it's, it seems like it's much less likely for um, optimization algorithms, uh, including uh, evolution, uh, to get stuck. 
Um, in other words, like there used to be a very a significant problem with neural networks that was called um, basically premature convergence or being stuck on a local optimum, um, which is that like it would improve for a while and then it would just basically hit a peak or a plateau where it can't get anywhere better. Um, and we have seen that now in when you have millions of dimensions, this seems to be a much less common problem. Um, which is very strange and, and I think uh, to some extent unexpected that this would happen. Um, it seems like higher dimensional spaces are just different. So what does that mean? That basically means that like it, it turns it closer to something that's like magic. I mean, I'm not saying it's magic, but like you wouldn't necessarily have thought like 15 years ago that you, you take some optimization algorithm and try to find the best weights for something. That if, if you just push forward for long enough, it'll just keep getting better and better and better and better and almost become... Uh, perfect, not necessarily perfect, but almost perfect. Um, but that now seems to be uh, pretty common uh, in the world of neural networks. Um, and it seems to be a result of sh the shift into higher dimensional space. Uh, and people have some theories about why this is, hmm. um, but it is, it, is, it is an interesting revelation um, and has pretty yeah, big what are, what are some What are some theories about it? I remember in, um, in college, our math teacher was talking about Know, derivatives and things like that and he took us to like a field and we walked up and down hills and we found local minimums and local maximums so i can kind of understand that in a three-dimensional space but right higher dimensional space I, no one can really imagine why but what are some of the theories why you can you don't get stuck in local minimums or maximums right uh good question um that is that is those are the right kinds of metaphors like the idea of going up a hill and or getting stuck on top of a small hill when the bigger hill is next door and things like that. that. Those are the kinds of problems, like when people visualize and try to understand, like what does it mean to be stuck? Like that's sort of the right way to think about it. Um, but so what happened in high dimensional space? Like why is that metaphor no longer working? It seems to be something like this, like to speak about it, like in a way that maybe is informal enough to, to make it understandable, is that it seems to be that like if you add enough dimensions to the world, um, it suddenly it becomes very unlikely that there isn't an escape route. Or in other words, like imagine this, imagine you're, you're in jail and you're surrounded by walls on all sides, so basically six sides because you've got the ceiling and the floor um, and you can't get out. So basically you're locked in. Now, you're, if you're in a three-dimensional world, you, you can't go anywhere, you're not gonna be able to get out. But what if the fourth dimension, this obviously isn't gonna happen, but this would obviously present like a completely impossible to characterize opportunity for you. I mean, if you were in a three-dimensional jail and the fourth dimension opened up, maybe it leads somewhere else. Now, what if the fifth dimension opens up, the sixth dimensions open up, and then in millions of new dimensions? Um, it seems like it becomes increasingly likely that somewhere, at least, is an escape route that can get you out of where you are. Um, and so what seems to happen is that things that look like local optima, or like it looks like you're on the peak of a hill, maybe you're on the peak of a hill in most dimensions, but at least there's some dimensions that can get you out. And so what used to be local optima, now we might call them saddle points. Like they're sort of like places where you appear to be uh, stuck somewhere, but actually, and in this case with a saddle, we would think of it as now there's an, as a way down. Um, so if, if you were trying to actually go down, you would still be able to get out. Um, you might feel like you hit the, the bottom of the saddle and you're stuck, but there's another direction you could go to get out of the saddle. Um, and so gotcha. it seems like high dimensional space is kind of like rife with saddle points. Um, and that's just the difference between high dimensional and low dimensional space. Yeah, or maybe the highs aren't so high and the lows aren't so low as well. Maybe those, that's a combination of those things. Maybe it's, it's all really three dimensional space, but you're just making more and more, uh, I guess, wormhole type 
connections between parts of the space that wouldn't normally be connected. So therefore, it can jump around and never really get trapped in a, a minima or maxima. And these are just my theories I'm just making up on the fly. But. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard to think about. I mean, obviously, like you said, we can't visualize barely. We can't, probably most people can't visualize even four dimensions, and now we're talking about millions. Uh, so it, nobody really can, can comprehend what this looks like. Um, but we see these results, so we can interpret them, I mean, empirically, and we can do some theoretical analysis. We can understand to some extent that there are some interesting properties like out there in these really weirdly high-dimensional spaces. And it, to some extent, explains why neural networks have taken off. You know, I mean, the dominant paradigm now in machine learning is neural networks or deep learning. Um, and so with neuroevolution now kind of stepping into that higher dimensional arena, it kind of shows now there's even more opportunities uh, with high dimensionality um, to like evolve really, really big brains. I mean, hopefully soon you'll, you'll see billions of connections in these things um, in the next years or decades um, and maybe eventually trillion, trillions. What do, what do our brains look like? I mean, do they look like a 10 dimensional space or what um, if you were to describe it, do you have any insight into that? Like our own brains, our, our biological brains? What do they look like? Yeah, our biological brains, yeah. Because of the yeah, science yeah. you work in, you have the insights into that. Yeah, it gives you some, some thoughts about that. I mean, you would, I think the simplest way to, to uh, fit it into that way of speaking would be just to say that we have um, about 100 trillion dimensions that we are constantly moving on um, throughout the day um, because we have about 100 trillion connections in the brain. And each one of those connections has uh, some property that is dynamic and basically can change. Um, so we would call it a weight, like in, in neural network terminology, say, okay, each connection has a weight. Now, the re reality is that connections in your brain actually have more than just one weight. Um, there's a lot of complicated chemical properties for any given connection or neuron. Um, so in reality, like we're talking about probably more than uh, just the number of connections in terms of the actual dimensionality, because it'd be like all the free variables there. Um, can potentially change on every connection. Uh, so trillions and trillions and trillions of dimensions shifting all simultaneously all throughout your life. Um, and so it's just incomprehensibly complex. And even compared to millions of connections in a modern neural networks, it's like way, way, way out of the ballpark. Um, so we don't have a grasp computationally of systems like that or how they operate really yet. Um, but it looks like it might be on the horizon um, You know, as computational power goes up. At least that we could optimize something that big is certainly uh, possible. I mean, this, is just, this is just wild speculation, but could you run a biological brain, could you drive it to run like a computerized brain would run, but use its architecture? Is that even a thought, um, or is that just crazy? Uh, can you, uh, you run a biological brain, like use the architecture? Um, you mean well, you use the, the architecture, architecture of a... Yeah, right. The architecture of a human brain is so much more complicated and has so much more connectivity or interconnectivity than mm -hmm. the you know the computerized stuff you're working with, for instance. I know yeah, everyone's yeah. trying to model a human brain, but is there a way to, I don't know, is there a way to, I mean, it, I don't know why I even brought this up. It's just kind of out of the blue, but it made me think, you know, is there a way to take a brain, use it as like a device and drive it with inputs and get outputs, but use its architecture to get you know, more, can you use a brain to do computation? I don't know. <laughs> so like a, like a biological brain, we might actually try to use it, um, like take it out of uh, the body, basically. Um, and yeah, not, a, maybe a not a person, but uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, like, I like, an, like an animal or so. Yeah, so obviously, first of all, like as you just alluded, like obviously we're not talking about doing that with people um, at all. That no one's ever going to do right. that, hopefully. Um, but um, it's certainly with some animals, um, this kind of thing actually has been looked at. Um, like uh, I believe that, and this is definitely we're moving a little outside of my area of expertise, but I believe that um, I've heard that like insect brains, for example. Um, have been um, hooked into circuits that uh, were used to uh, move uh, like remote control vehicles or something like that. Um, mm. And so some of the spatial navigational capabilities were somehow leveraged um, to do some something computational. Um, I, but I know I, I'm kind of uh, just hand-waving because I, I, I have to acknowledge I'm not an expert on this, but I believe that this kind of thing has been done. In, like neuroscientists do... Uh, probe brains, you know, you, you can use, you, you can uh, look look and clamp electrical properties of the brain and actually look at them even live while they're running. I mean, obviously this isn't done with humans, um, but um, that means that certainly you can take inputs and outputs and uh, do things with those circuits. I mean, they have actually, I, I know that like disabled people who um, can't uh, move, can uh, who are paralyzed, uh, they have, there are experiments where they've been able to uh, directly from the brain, uh, take outputs and like allow them to move cursors on a screen and things like that um, using their wow. brain. Um, so it's almost like telepathy, except it's going over a wire. Um, and so, so yeah, certainly uh, the, the brain is a computational device of some sort. Um, it's not mm. really like a computer, but uh, it has uh, electrical activity um, that you can uh, intercept and uh, you interpret how you want. So yeah, that's that's interesting that there's. I mean, this possibility there, uh, I mean, for the future of these kind of like um, augmented cognition systems or, you know, some in science fiction, maybe like we'd, we'd be like wearing like these implants in our heads that like hook us into the Internet directly into our brain or something like that. Um, but who knows about that? Um, but uh, it's like not not necessarily theoretically impossible. OK. Um, any, any problems out there that are considered, you know, quite tough that, you know, your research may lead to answers to? that you're particularly excited in, you know, even one or two, like what, maybe what's the one or two most exciting things to you that you think are possible in the next few years because of the research you're doing? Yeah. So one thing that really interests me is what I, or many people call the problem of open-endedness. Um, and this uh, problem, open-endedness comes from uh, originally inspiration in evolution and uh, evolutionary computation literature um, where people were, interested in how it was possible that we could have had evolutionarily started from a single cell or something like a single cell um, like billions of years ago and gotten to a point now where we have all of the diversity on earth um, of life on earth like uh, going you know from um, birds which can fly to plants which can perform photosynthesis to humans that have intelligence at an extreme level and so all of these things are inventions of a single run of a single process, which is evolution. And that's just incredible because when we run algorithms on computers, um, including like evolutionary algorithms, which would be the closest to what we see on Earth, like nothing like that happens. Uh, you, you wouldn't be able to sit down and say, I'm going to start running neuroevolution today and press the you know go button and then just uh, wait a billion years, come back and expect to see something really grandiose like we see on earth like that would not be expected to happen um in mm -hmm. fact the run would be over with anything interesting within like 
days or weeks. Um, and so we don't actually fully understand how it's possible or what the ingredients were that made it possible for a process to continue to innovate over eons like that. Um, but we would like to create algorithms that actually do that, you know, because first of all, those kinds of algorithms might be the al kinds of algorithms you need to get like human level brains, like to evolve autonomously inside of a computer. And we don't understand what actually causes that kind of a process uh, to survive and succeed. Um, and the other part of it is that we also would like to be able to get that kind of creativity just in general. So the, you know, the prolific creativity of nature, when you look at all of the diversity of life on Earth and the inventions of life on Earth, which are mostly beyond any capability of human engineers today, you know, when you look at like photosynthesis or human level intelligence, um, they're just incredible uh, inventions. And why, why can't we create a, a process inside of a computer that would be similarly inventive and similarly non-stop. So these kinds of processes, like, presumably don't end. You know, this has been going on for more than a billion years. Um, right. And so the prospect of creating algorithms that have that property, uh, to me, is really interesting and exciting and something that I've been looking at for a while. You know, when I think about, like, why am I evolving a neural network versus, um, like, a more conventional kinds of neural network training, which usually would be through what's called gradient descent, it's partly because I'm inspired by this idea of open-endedness. And I'd like to see like a proliferation of like creativity and complexity inside the computer um, that could lead to things that, that then maybe would be learning systems um, and, and perhaps combined with gradient descent, which for deep learning people will, will, will recognize the, the term gradient descent. Um, and so I think like we want to be able to evolve really complex things. We may need an open-ended process to really do that. Okay. Well, very good. Um, is there a way for listeners to find out more about you know, Uber AI Labs' work, you know, what's a website resource or other resource where they can find out more? Uh, yes. Um, let me, so, best thing to do, because I don't have a computer in front of me. It is Google to, Uber, Uber AI Labs, I guess, and that'll work, right? Uh, that would work. Uh, that does work. Okay. I mean, I can get you, if if you give me a second, I can look on my phone, but I don't, I don't know if that's necessary, but, um, yeah, so Googling Uber AI Labs is probably the easiest thing to do. You'll find Uber AI Labs. Um, you can also, sure. uh, sorry? Um, you can also just uh, you can also Google me. You can find my homepage, um, mm -hmm. and you can Google neuroevolution also if you want to know about the field of neuroevolution. Yeah, that'll be a good resource for for listeners, definitely. Well, very good, uh, Ken. I really appreciate being on the call, and uh, you know it's going to be crazy to see what happens over the next few years in the AI world. Yeah, indeed, and uh, certainly uh, happy to have been here. Thank you for having me. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, in their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. 
Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.